Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. We're very lucky today to have Terry uh, joining us to talk about cyber warfare, at least the stuff we can talk about here on this unclassified uh, engagement. So uh, if you have questions for Terry, start asking questions. We already have quite a lot of questions came from social media. So if you want to ask your questions, start with a queue in the comment section below uh, so we can prioritize some of your questions live. If you want to share you with uh, us today, uh, just put your name in the comment section below so we can highlight you on the screen as well. And uh, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, uh, please go to inthenickoftime.tv and uh, put your email so you can get uh, an email notification per week uh, on the next uh, episodes so you can keep up and make sure you get notified of the next uh, engagement since uh, many times social media uh, platforms are not sending the invitation to uh, despite having uh, 57,000 followers, we barely see 2,000 being sent. So clearly, uh, it's not doing its job. So with that, uh, better for you to directly go to inlinkoftime.tv and, and subscribe. If you've not yet uh, taken a look at uh, assage.ai, go check it out. Uh, we're bringing GPT to government teams, but, but, but you know what's very exciting is also all the features we're releasing on top of it. Right, We're agnostic to the large language model. We have OpenAI, we have Cohere, we have Google Bard. We have so many different options. But what's interesting is the plugin stuff. We're building integrations with API, data, data lakes, uh, databases. We just uh, released the plugin chain agent that's effectively uh, automating an entire set of tasks, um, just like you would see in AutoGPT, but in, in a secure and safe way, all the way to CUI. So you can uh, effectively... Uh, automate a you know, half day or a day of work. Uh, people use it for so many different things from coding to writing RFPs to responding to RFP. I just actually uh, responded to another bids uh, just a few days ago. And it took me 32 minutes instead of probably a couple of days. So that's a, a massive uh, game changer when it comes to augmenting your time. So check it out, go create an account, it's free. And then uh, uh, we have a different plans, 30 bucks a month to get access to um, all those paid plugins and features. So I think it's gonna be uh, pretty exciting for you to see. We we have about 3,500 government teams now on the platform after only three months. So it's pretty, uh, pretty game changing and 750 companies as well. With that, let me introduce uh, our, our dear guest and we'll, we'll talk about um, Terry uh, now is, is really uh, an exceptional uh, guest for us to be able to to cover this topic that we we have been trying to really uh, uh, do a deep dive on for for many uh, months now on on the, on the cyber warfare side of things and uh, as you know we had many episodes when it comes to uh, the cyber defense side of things in fact next week we're going to get a, a one of the co-founder of uh, uh, Aqua Security that's uh, Amir who is leading all the uh, uh, cyber de de defense aspect of things and uh, bringing all these new capabilities, including AI uh, research in there, uh, which is uh, kind of a, a exciting game changer uh, with what they call the uh, the CNAP, right? Not the not the DoD CNAP, uh, the C N A A A P P. So Terry, who is joining us today, served in the Marine Corps and participated in the early stage of, opera, uh, of operation during freedom directly after the 9-11 attacks on our nation. He's an offensive cyber warfare expert. He spent a decade uh, developing advanced cyber warfare capabilities for the DoD and the intelligence community. He is now uh, the founder and CEO of Red uh, Berries Innovations. 
Uh, it's a cyber security and machine learning development company. Um, and he's also the founder of Fleet Defender. Uh, that's a, a platform you'll see today, uh, which is uh, a cybersecurity company to enable clients uh, to operate their sea, land, air, and space platforms anytime, anywhere, without fear of compromise as much as uh, possible. So it's going to be interesting to to look into how different uh, it is to, to defend um, assets like a jet or a bomber or a ship compared to a, a traditional IT system. So we'll take a look at that also today. With that, I rem remember to uh, ask your questions in the comment section below. Start with the Q, so we know it's a question. And uh, again, thanks so much for joining us and welcome, uh, Terry, to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was so excited. You know, uh, as we always start, we like to get a little bit uh, uh, to get a background on you on yourself first and uh, get to know you a little bit better. So we're going to give you a couple of minutes for you to to give us a rundown on what you've been up to for the last uh, few years. Yeah, so um, you covered, covered it. Thanks for covering it so well uh, in the bio there. Um, you know, I spent um, a long time working um, at a company called um, SI Government Solutions, um, which was purchased by Raytheon back in 2008, um, kind of working on the, you know, a lot of buzzwords, you know, the full spectrum cyber warfare side of the house. So everything from reverse engineering, vulnerability research, uh, exploitation development, capability development, kind of, you know, again, end to end uh, cyber warfare. And, uh, you know, the the focus area that I really played in the most was on the um, what I, I call the platform side of the house, you know, like your trains, planes, automobiles, uh, spacecraft, that kind of stuff. So more of your embedded system of systems and, and unique kind of things. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of large portion of my career kind of in that area. And, um, and now, um, you know, 2018 started uh, RBI, um, you know, as a cyber uh, warfare and artificial intelligence kind of development company, uh, working a lot within those same spaces. And, and uh, one of the technologies that we developed um, was a, um, you can kind of look at it as like a cyber intrusion detection system. Um, but it's for, um, you know, platforms. So it's, it's not for your traditional IT, you know, business enterprise type stuff. It's more for your uh, more unique targets that are, you know, again, trains, planes, automobiles, spacecraft, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what I've been up to lately. It's going to be an interesting discussion and deep dive to really try to compare, you know, the differences between traditional IT systems and those platforms. And um, of course, by platforms, we mean, you know, these weapon systems, not a DevSecOps platform for people that get confused with the term platform, a very different uh, use of the word platform here. Um, so, you know, when you when we look at your background, you know, what's interesting is obviously your deep uh, background and decade of experience in cyber offense. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, for people that are so used here to defend networks, right? Um, what is it and, and how is it different from the defensive side? Yeah, so um, I guess the, the easiest way to explain it is, um, you know, like IT, they build it. Uh, on the offensive cyber side, uh, we like to say we break it. Um, so uh, it's it's a really interesting thing to, to look at systems um, and take them apart instead of putting them together. You know, it's a completely different uh, the mentality that you have. And, um, you know, for a lot of it, um, 
you know, we look for ways of using the system in ways that the original developer never thought that it could be used for. Um, you know, like for example, you've got um, you know sensors in a vehicle that that monitor uh, the the roughness of the road in order to um, uh, adjust the suspension to make it a smoother ride for the occupants of the vehicle. Um, but then from like an offensive perspective, if we were able to access that data that's on those, you know, the CAN bus networks or the, the, um, the embedded networks that are in the vehicle, um, we can use it using, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually map cities and map roads and see, you know, what's a dirt road, what's a paved road, where's the potholes, where's the speed bumps. And from an intelligence perspective, if you're dealing with this in an area that you can't get to normally, um, just because it's a denied area, um, that provides a wealth of intelligence and just, you know, as a, as a contrived example. And so from a defensive side, you know, you're, you're trying to keep people out. Um, and then of course, on the offensive side, you're looking for that one way in that you can get in and do something to achieve your mission, whether it's intelligence gathering, whether it's, you know, destructive in nature, you know, whatever that may be. Um, that, that's kind of the, how we see the difference is, is, uh, you know, the defensive side and the IT side, you know, they build it and protect it. Whereas on the offensive side, we try to break it. Yeah. And that's always interesting, right? Because people debate, uh, which one is easier? And, uh, you know, we're always trying to play catch up on the, the defensive side, uh, always uh, allegedly, you know, easier to get in, uh, particularly, you know, when you look at some of the pretty poor cyber hygiene of, of many organizations nowadays, and uh, the number of, of CVs and vulnerabilities released on a daily basis is, is very difficult to to play catch up. So, you know, what's harder, right? Defending a network or attacking one? Uh, I think you're going to get a million different answers depending on who you ask. Um, I will say from, um, you know, one of the, the, the harder parts about the defensive side is um, you have to cover the entire space, like end to end, every endpoint, every single piece of the network uh, and all the systems, you've got to cover everything. And that's a huge task, right? Like if you think of just the size of just even the DOD's enterprise networks, that's massive. Um, from an attacker's perspective, we only have to find one vulnerability that can get us to where we need to go. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you'd, you'd have a whole chain, you'd have a kill chain of multiple exploits, you know, to get to kind of what you're getting to. But we don't have to worry about the entire space. Um, we just look for that one little pinhole that we can get through. Um, but then on the other side of the, the coin, you know, from a defensive perspective, you know, everything about the network, all the design documents, you know, everything is open to you. Whereas from an attacker perspective, it's more of a black box. Like we don't know what's on the other side of the firewall. We don't know what's on the other side of the gateway. And so for, you know, that perspective, it gets a little bit more difficult in just the sense of having to do the recon and the extra work and the reverse engineering to understand how it works uh, and find the vulnerabilities versus just kind of having it open to you like a, a white box. So I, I think everyone, whether they're on the defensive side or the offensive side, will say, um, that they have the hardest job. Um, but I think each one has um, things that are very hard and things that are very easy for different reasons. Yeah, and you know, obviously on the defensive side, people may, may argue that they actually don't know the full picture of things because of, you know, shadow IT and, and all the stuff that's going on in vacuums. And so, you know, uh, while, you know, you, you're facing a black box on the offensive side, I would argue they also often defend a, a, a black box as well. So. That's always interesting. That, that's, that's um, a fair point. 
I wish you we wish, you know, what that's why the first step of, of any cyber defense is is to understand your assets. But uh obviously um most don't and uh they barely actually track most of their uh physical assets, let alone, you know, uh mobile uh cloud cloud assets, containers and, and ephemeral things, you know, it compounds obviously the complexity there. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of alluded a little bit to the different steps and stages and, and things to pay attention to in offensive cyber, but maybe do, do a little bit of a deeper dive, you know, when it comes to explaining to the audience what's involved in offensive cyber here. Yeah, and we can group each of the stages into like kind of three large areas. And like one is the administrative side, then you have the technology piece, and then you have the operational piece. And so um, on the administrative side, that's, you know, like you, you had mentioned, like one of the biggest, hardest parts about defense is doing asset management, just knowing what is on your network. Well, same thing from an administrative side. If you're doing targeting, um, what does the adversary network look like? What what components are involved in the, the bigger system that you're going after? So that's kind of the targeting piece. So that would be like generating like an attack surface analysis understanding you know what's there um, what are the different paths that we could take to get to what we're trying to get to uh, and then doing you know an attack you know um, you know after the attack surface analysis you know going through that and ranking each attack vector which could be a pathway in um, as to the viability you know and some of that's science and some of its art you know at some point like you just got to trust your gut from your experience of you know what I bet that that protocol like Bluetooth for example is so complex there's so many layers there's so much code written by so many people there's probably a high likelihood that we could find a vulnerability there that's exploitable to get us what we want and so it's kind of ranking the attack vector so that's more of the administrative side before the technologists actually get in there and start breaking stuff you know what are we going to break what are we going to go after how are we going to test it things like that and then you kind of move into the technology part um and that's like the true what you call kind of the cyber warfare part from an engineering perspective like what cyber engineers would be doing on a day-to-day -day basis um, and that kind of starts with reverse engineering. So if you've got like, you know, um, a black box that's coming out of somewhere in the world that you want to target, um, you got to start taking it apart. You got to start reverse engineering it, understand what are the components, how does it work, and even kind of extend that attack surface analysis down inside of that black box. Um, so once you've done a lot of the reverse engineering, you can build your test tools, your emulators, you can extract the firmware, you can start disassembling it, things like that. And that's when you get into the vulnerability research side. And that's where you're basically looking for the bugs, right? Like you're looking for a flaw in the software that, or the hardware that um, is there from design that you can leverage to do what you want. And then um, once you do the vulnerability research and you find the bug, now there's the side of exploiting the bug. So now you've got a bug. Is it exploitable? Can it get you remote code execution? Uh, can it get you to where you want to go? And if so, then you have to write your exploit. Right. So that's writing zeros and ones, um, you know, so that way you could actually exploit the vulnerability to deliver your payload, which is now the last part. Right. Like you have to actually develop your implant, your, uh, you know, your payload, your capability, whatever word you want to use for it. And that's the thing that's going to do what it does. Right. Like so like you find a, a bug in the Bluetooth stack, you throw your exploit at it, you gain execution control. Then you install your implant, which turns on the speakers of the vehicle and then funnels everything that they're saying inside the cab out over Wi-Fi or cellular or whatever um, back to your listening post, right? So that's kind of the, the end to end on the, the technology piece. Um, but I kind of alluded into now the operations side, right? Like you actually have to have the infrastructure to actually use what you've 
created. And so that's where like, you know, in the movies where, you know, they're like, hey, we're going to bounce our signal off of seven satellites so they can't find out who did it, you know, like a non-attribution network. Uh, it's actually way more complicated than that in real life. But you need to like invest time to build that infrastructure uh, in order to use the tools that you did. You have to be able to manage the tools. You have to do targeting and all these other things. So that that's kind of how I look at it. You know, you've got the administrative side, the engineering side, and then the operation side. And that's that's obviously a, a pretty you know complex set of of different phases. And uh, you know when it comes to the discovery phase, what's what are the the things you're paying attention to uh, to avoid also in terms of being noisy and 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 maybe attracting attention from from the defense teams. Right. And, and that that's 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 a really good point. And that's part of your, you know, your threat matrix or your risk matrix as part of these operations is is knowing what defenses they have in place. And, um, you know, and it's not only that, but it's also, you know, just even the, the bigger picture, um, you got to think about where you're operating and how are you going to practice? Um, because, you know, we've seen that a lot of our near peer adversaries or peer adversaries, um, they don't come straight at the United States or Eastern or sorry, Western Europe and some of the, the countries that have very strong cybersecurity practices already in place, um, they go and they test things in, you know, the Ukraine or India um, or other places where there's not as big of a focus um, on cybersecurity. So they can kind of perfect their techniques or their what we call like the TTPs, right? Tactics, techniques and procedures. And they perfect them. They figure out what works, what doesn't work. How do we get past certain defenses? What defenses are in place? Uh, and so on and so forth. So then they kind of graduate from there up to the big leagues and they come after, you know, the nations that are truly their targets, um, which are the United States, you know, Europe, you know, the, the free democracies of the world. Yeah. Do you feel like, um, you know, companies on the on the commercial side are, are doing better than governments usually when it comes to cyber defense, or do you find you know the governments to be leading when it comes to defending their, their networks? Uh, that's a good question. I think you can find a, a huge swing uh, of things. Um, you know, I would equate large companies and enterprises like you know Facebook and Microsoft and Google. You know, the big ones, kind of like a government, right? They practically have the same resources, or in some cases, more. Uh, than the government does. Um, I think some of the benefits of being on the corporate side is um, you could probably move a little bit faster. Um, you don't have to generate large, you know, risk management frameworks, packages, and and things that take you know months and months to develop. So you can probably move a little bit faster. Um, but then also um, on the government side, you've got a ton of you know you can outreach into all the research and development, all the best practices that are out there. I think where we really suffer is in the smaller companies where you can't afford a lot of cybersecurity. Like it, it does get very expensive. Um, I know just developing out just the systems and all the procedures and, and getting all the packages together just to meet the requirements um, for CMMC um, in order to, you know, store and process, you know, CUI data um, that takes a lot of money. And so it can be a barrier for small companies that want to, you know, actually increase their cybersecurity to actually be able to do it. Yeah, we just had to do it for for us ages. That was that was fun. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, fun is so, one word for it. <laughs> right, right. 
so you know you, you kind of mentioned right the, uh, the 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 broader aspect of 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 cyber warfare as a whole versus just the offensive defensive side so when you look at the key pieces of of the you know kind of the entire universe of cyber warfare can, can you tell us a little bit more about what all those key pieces and and what to pay attention to yeah, I, I think I, I might have jumped the gun and answered a little bit of that um, before. Um, you know, it is a very, very large space. Uh, it takes a lot of people, a lot of really smart people and a lot of really de dedicated people. And I think, um, you know, depending on where you're sitting, uh, you might discount one or the other. But I mean, everything from the administrative side all the way to the operations side, like you need all of it. And it's all extremely complex. And so I would still say, I'd still break it down. You know, the, the key pieces are still those three large areas um, and kind of how I, I laid it out. And without any one of them, um, you could probably still function, but um, you're not going to be able to actually really accomplish a lot. Um, you know, for example, um, we talk a lot about, you know, the hacker in his mom or his or her mom's basement. Um, you know, throwing code together and, and doing something. And, you know, that is still a reality today. There's still, you know, some of that going on. Um, but without the without being able to leverage a larger team on the administrative side to do targeting and on the operations side to actually manage it, the impact that they can have, you know, sometimes can be pretty large depending on the vulnerability, but still in the grand scheme of things, still very limited. Uh, and so it really does um, depend on having um, the ability to outreach to all those different areas and put together that large scale operation, um, which governments are very good at, um, to have the cyber warfare excellence that you need to like really operate, you know, at least against us, you know, the United States and our, our peer and near peer adversaries. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, right? Because people always assume, um, it, it doesn't take a lot to get this stuff done. And, and sometimes, you know, people get lucky and sometimes, you know, there's plenty of easy target uh, because of the lack of kind of cyber awareness and, and focus on improving uh, cyber defense in many organizations, particularly smaller teams. You know, you did mention the large groups like the Microsoft of the world, but but how are we doing when you look at, you know, critical infrastructure? I know when I was at DHS, uh, two weeks after I started, I started buying generators because I realized how quickly uh, we could lose access to the grid. What's your take on the, the current state of cyber when it comes specifically to, uh, you know, national security slash uh, critical infrastructure? Well, if you would ask that question 10 years ago, um, maybe even five years ago, my answer would be vastly different. Um, I think um, probably about 10 years ago, we, we really started to realize, you know, how bad um, the cybersecurity uh, on the utility companies, on the on the utility um uh, the UPS side of the house was, and there's been a lot of efforts to improve that. I mean, I know DARPA, um, what they have grid X, I think was one, and they had multiple other programs that were really focused on how do we protect the grid? And they've made huge, huge strides, uh, in doing that. And I mean, everything through like NERC SIP and a lot of these regulations that have come out that kind of helped the utility companies say, okay, this is how we need to actually be securing a power plant. This is how we need to secure, you know, transmission lines. You know, this is how we, um, you know, it, it's the end to end. Cause you know, even within the utilities, you know, there's I think four or five different major parts to it. And power generation is just a very tiny piece. You've got all the transmission, the distribution and, and so on and so forth. And each one has technology and is enabled by connected technology um, because 
we all know why it just makes life so much easier. You can do so much more when things are connected. And, uh, but yeah, through NERC SIP and, and a lot of these DARPA programs and, and other things, we've done a, a great job securing the power grid. Um, but at the same time, having a generator is not a bad idea. I mean, in the Midwest, you get tornadoes in Florida, we get hurricanes. Like even if it's not a cyber attack, you're still going to need it at some point. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? What's interesting is a lot of people looking at what's going on in Ukraine with Russia. They 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 are surprised there's not more uh, kind of uh, you know cyber activity uh, against you know uh, Ukraine, for example. What why do you think that is, or why do you think it's been you know pretty limited? I mean, we we've seen some some hacks, you know, with uh, Viasat and 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 you know even to the point of destroy destroying routers. Uh, then, then they went after SpaceX, but SpaceX was able to patch their stuff in in a day. Um, so, what what do you see? What why do you think there's less activity on the cyber side uh, with Ukraine and Russia? So, I think it's kind of a mix. I think there's a lot more than what the public knows uh, going on. Um, you know, so there so there's that, and then on you know what we do know about. Um, it really depends on like what they're what they're going after and what they're trying to do. Um, so, you know, I kind of equate, I always kind of joked, it's like, oh, so, you know, North Korea launches a cyber attack against the United States and they do something. Okay. Um, so we're going to go back and we're going to, you know, respond in kind and we're going to launch a cyber attack against North Korea. Well, what are we going to do? I mean, they already are kind of living in the stone age. Like, okay, knock out all the cellular networks. It affects what the 5,000 government employees that have cell phones, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of old numbers, but you know, it, so it really depends on, you know, what the infrastructure is there. I know Ukraine is obviously, you know, further ahead than, than North Korea, but um, there is a lot of cyber activity going on, um, not only in the Ukraine too, but also expanding from it because, you know, we've seen, you know, some, um, you know, rumblings of, uh, cyber attacks against logistics and supply chains throughout Eastern Europe because Russia is trying to slow down uh, the flow of Western aid into the Ukraine. Um, so we have seen some things going on there. Um, and then likewise, um, you know, one of the ones that kind of flows right into the platform and in, in the vehicle piece um, is the Ukrainian hackers that work with John Deere in order to um, wipe the firmware of all the uh, John Deere tractors that Russia stole from the Ukraine. Uh, and I think they, if I remember the news story right, they moved them to uh, Chechnya or somewhere over there. And so uh, the Ukrainian hackers teamed up with with John Deere and they actually went out uh, and exploited all the tractors and wiped the firmware. So that way Russia basically just has a bunch of like really expensive paperweights now. Yeah, that's that's that was a pretty interesting use case, although people may be said to realize the, the power of these uh, manufacturers, including in, in, a, in the automotive industry, when people stop paying the bills, they can just shut off your car. I'm not sure if people sign up for that, but uh, that's interesting, uh, no doubt. Um, you know, so when you when you look at the the you know the discovery phase and the research side of vulnerabilities, you know, you mentioned hey, you know, you know, scanning discovery discovering assets, and then you know all the way maybe to potentially writing uh, zero days and and your own exploit, which you know, it's probably like the one percent I, I would argue of the people capable of of doing that compared to the vast majority of people just exploiting. Uh, things with existing uh, exploit, uh, but what is what is so hard about uh, you know that that vulnerability uh, research? Uh, is it okay to give the answer everything? 
Um, <laughs> it, it's tough. There, there's, there's a lot of nuances to it um, that a lot of people, um, you know, that's not in the industry might not realize. And, you know, I can, I can give one example. Um, you know, it's a, a concept that we call uh, continued execution. So imagine you have, um, I'm going to kind of go back in time a little bit to the days of buffer overflows, because those were the, you know, the good old days of cyber, cyber warfare and hacking. Um, you know, if you exploit a buffer overflow, there's probably a, a really good chance that you're going to wipe out a large part of the, of the stack, you know, the memory stack for, you know, that process. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get, you know, in Windows, if it's in the kernel in the old days, you know, you're going to get the blue screen of death, right? Like we all know about the, the blue screen of death. Um, if it's an application, say it's your browser, you know, if you, um, you know, hit a vulnerability and cause it to crash, um, there's a good chance that, you know, your browser is going to crash and, 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 um, and exit. And so it's very obvious to the user that something happened. So like you load up a specific website, you click on a link and then your browser crashes. Uh, immediately you're like, oh great, someone probably just got me. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you probably just got had. Um, but you know, where it gets really tricky is, is continued execution means that once you exploit the vulnerability and no matter what damage, digital damage you had done to that process, you're able to rebuild it in a way that the application continues to execute in a way that the user never noticed anything. It just kept going. Uh, and so, you know, that that's really tricky. Like how, like you have no previous knowledge of what's in memory. Uh, and so how do you rebuild that in a way that keeps the application executing? You know, and that, that's just, that's just one example. And so, you know, I've seen, you know, IOT devices where 15 minutes after taking it out of the box, just by like, you know, catting dev random uh, to a, a socket that was open on the network. So just sending random data uh, to a network socket or a network port that's open, uh, it just starts crashing and rebooting. And then you're like, ah, found a bug, um, you know, within 15 minutes. And then I've seen other programs that worked for, you know, 12 months on a single target and never found a bug. And so, you know, another piece to it is the psychology of it. And, you know, what we called it um, at SI was the VR roller coaster. Um, because, you know, from a psychology standpoint, it was very difficult because you think you found a bug. Nope, wasn't a bug. Okay, so then you're back to a low, right? And then you spend weeks and weeks and weeks of testing. You write all these new tests. You build all these new testing systems, all these new emulators. And then all of a sudden you find a bug and you're like, yes, got one. You verify, yes, it is a, it is a bug and it's not exploitable. And so it, it's not gonna, it's not a valuable bug. So now you're off your high, you're back at a low and you're, you're starting all over again. Uh, and then you find a bug, it's exploitable and you get the huge win. And then Microsoft patches it next week. And so you're back to square one again. Uh, and so it's just this constant roller coaster of psychology of, you know, am I, am I, am I, am I just not good enough to find the bug or is there just no bug there? Yeah, that's interesting. Although I would argue probably Microsoft sometimes take a little bit more than a week to patch things. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, just kidding. Um, but you know, when you, when you look at, um, kind of the, the landscape, right? But by, by the way, you, you mentioned, you know, overflows, I believe in 2022 is still the matter, majority of CVE. So then, you know, the you call them the old days. I, I don't know if 2022 is, is old days yet, but I, I don't think so. I think it's very much, you know, still uh, the probably one of the largest source of, of, of CVE. So clearly uh, a lot of 
software in, in C and, and other languages that, that have <laughs> overflows. So, but you know, it's it's been interesting to see Duty, for example, moving to to Rust and and you know uh, languages that that have uh, built-in you know protection against it. So I think that's going to be interesting. Um, that that is an interesting one. You mentioned Rust. You know, a lot of my conversations with um, various groups within both Air Force, Space Force, and Navy, I've even heard some PMs say like, "We are not starting any new program that's not you know in Rust. Like we're kind of dictating this to our contractors now." And I found that pretty interesting, um, just from the sense of like, I I I really hope they're not looking at Rust as the silver bullet. Like, oh look, we're not vulnerable anymore. We use Rust. Um, I think right. it does help. Um, it does remove some classes of exploits, but that, that doesn't mean we're secure. It doesn't mean that, right. that like we're perfect now. Um, I still think obviously we're going to need all the cyber professionals, all the testing and, and continued defense in depth and, you know, all the same principles, but at least maybe we can remove some low hanging fruit, um, and take a few more, uh, chess pieces off the table for the, yeah, avid no, 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 no doubt. I think the the beauty of of what people demonstrated with Rust is the ability of of not impacting real time for embedded systems and mm -hmm. and be able to achieve kind of the same outcomes and and kind of addressing a lot of the the more basic cyber issues like buffer overflows and such. But uh, doesn't mean you you just forget about cyber, right? But um, I guess yeah. it's it does check check a few more boxes than than if you didn't use it. I guess so. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not take that? I guess. Right. Um, yeah. Take every, all the help you can get for sure. That's right. Um, so, you know, everybody is, is, is pretending or claim, you know, they, they hacked and I've seen it, um, you know, multiple times in DOD, um, where, you know, uh, teams managed to get into calls, you know, and, and obviously calls are becoming more and more connected. Um, you know, it started really, you know, with Tesla that, that really enabled the first software over the update. You know, with meaningful changes, not a not a patch thing, but a real new features delivered to the call on a, on a biweekly basis was kind of a game changer, uh, and really kind of started the uh, the expectation that uh, you know your hardware might be stuck in time, but not your software. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, calls became more and more connected and did a, you know more and more things via the app, both in terms of you know, opening the door all the way to tracking your oil consumption and your driving and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, so is, is hacking calls a real thing? It is a real thing. Um, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time at the nation state level. Um, I mean, well over a decade. Um, I think when people really started to notice it, um, 2016, 2017 timeframe, um, two researchers, Charlie Miller, and if I get the name right, Chris Valasek, I think I got the name right. Um, they hacked a Jeep Cherokee uh, live on the news with the reporter uh, in the back seat, and they did it remotely while it was on the highway, you know, in a safe environment to kind of just demonstrate live on the news that this was possible. And if I remember right, I think they took over either steering or brakes and um, they disabled the engine. And um, so that was kind of the first really. I mean, th there was stuff before that, like, oh, we can hack the Bluetooth stack that's that's in a car, but we can listen to what's going on inside. Nothing, nothing too critical. Um, there were some other rumblings, I think in 2014 or 2015, uh, same guys, those two, the, um, they did a, a, a hack against the car, did the same thing, but they did it from inside the car plugged into the, I think the OBD2 port. Uh, and so like everybody was like, well, it's not remote. So yeah, it's a thing, but it's, it's not remote. So it's not that scary. 
Um, but when they did it remotely, I think that's when a lot of people started saying, oh, okay, yeah, this, this is actually a scary thing. And so since that time, um, you know, Tesla, they started going to, um, oh, geez, what's the, the, the contest that they have at Cansec West in Vancouver every year? Uh, it's like a, a hacking challenge. Um, uh, maybe someone in the comments can refresh my memory of what it's called. But Tesla started going to that now. Um, and every year people are finding vulnerabilities and they're able to exploit um, uh, Teslas and, and get a, a payment for, for demonstrating a vulnerability uh, in the Teslas. So uh, it, it is becoming more of a thing. I mean, all the way until about eight, nine months ago, uh, I believe it was Ben Garnier. Um, he was working with the National Motor Freight Trucking Association, the NMFTA, and they released a, um, a an exploit uh, or they, they discussed a vulnerability in the network. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Pwn to own. Thanks. Uh, I saw that in the comment. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, the, the NMFTA released um, information on a, on a vulnerability that would allow an attacker remotely with a software defined radio to inject diagnostic messages on a truck, you know, a heavy duty trailer network and lock the brakes while it's going down the highway. And so, a lot of these things are, are, are really starting to become apparent um, to the public that it's possible and that people are thinking about it and they're doing it. But then, like I said, at the nation state level, uh, it's just been another tool in the toolbox for a while now. Why do you think we don't see, I guess, more, more real life, you know, use cases of this happening for real? Like, you know, why, why wouldn't people start? doing some ransomware or crazy stuff if if it's if it's doable then wh why don't we see more evidence of it well that's the thing i was i was actually one of the things i say a lot is this, as soon as you know uh you know a certain adversary figures out they can ransomware cars um we're gonna be in a, a really bad state um i think right now uh, and why we haven't seen it to date is it's still pretty expensive um to generate um, you know, these capabilities against it. And that's why it's been kind of confined to the nation state level. Like it, you've got to have a lot of different people on your team with a lot of different specialties. Um, usually it's more than just one exploit. Like we found where you can um, exploit the infotainment unit, the head unit that's running, you know, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And the most you can do when you get there is, yeah, you can crash the box if you want. You can mess around with stuff on the screen. You can listen to everything going on in the cab because, you know, the microphones flow through infotainment um, and things like that. Um, but you're not taking over the brakes. You're not taking over the steering. You know, certain vehicles are architected to where like the head unit doesn't connect to the CAN bus. Um, other cars connect it to multiple CAN bus. And so um, there's still a lot of like every vehicle tell is, people is what, what a can bus can tell people what a can bus is if they oh yeah yeah sorry about that yeah so can is a controller area network um it's a it's an embedded uh networking protocol developed by bosch back in the 80s um and it's used in a lot of different embedded systems one of which is is vehicles and there's actually regulations throughout pretty much most of the world that say all diagnostics and vehicles have to go over the can bus and that's where we have like uh, layered on top of can is like your onboard diagnostics or OBD, your OBD2, uh, your unified diagnostic system, your UDS, like all of that sits as a higher level protocol on top of CAN. So CAN is like, think of it like the ethernet for vehicles, which I guess you shouldn't because there's now automotive ethernet and flex ray, but like it is the de facto standard of networking protocol for vehicles. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's helpful for people to um, to to understand what you're talking about. But uh, keep going on the uh, on the the topic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 very expensive to to generate these different things. Like I said, if if you land in the head unit, what can you do? And then you know, because every make and model is is different, um, they're starting to standardize now. They're starting to standardize on operating systems. You've got you know, you've got standardization across the industry on Apple CarPlay, um, Google's version of that. Um, you know, QNX is like the operating system right now that has just tons of market share across all, you know, all vehicles. And so now that they're starting to be Android Auto, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So now that they're starting to be more and more standardization and there's new tools because I think one of the things we'll talk about because you got asked Sage, you know, generative AI, and there's a lot of talk about how that's going to infect, uh, you know, cybersecurity, like the bar for entry in the cost of generating these kill chains to do something impactful against vehicles, it gets lower and lower every year. And you keep adding more and more connectivity and a lot of new technologies to cars that's, you know, still very cutting edge. Um, so hasn't been worked out, still a lot of flaws in the different networking stacks and, and software stacks. Um, you know, just all these different factors are kind of coming together now to where it is making it a lot easier and lowering the bar for entry to get into actually doing something meaningful against vehicles and other platforms. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's interesting because, right, we, we haven't seen, at least that we know of, a, a big uh, uh, figure getting killed or, you know, impacted somehow by hacking a, a vehicle, right? But, uh, you know, what about planes? You know, I mean, you, you know, you would argue it's expensive to hack a car for, for a few people, whatnot. But, you know, if you hack a, a, a liner, uh, you know, with 400 people in it, you know, people are going to pay a lot of money on ransom, right? So what what, what, what do we see there? And, and is it also a, a thing to start trying to get into, into planes? I, I think it is a thing. Um, you know, is it a big thing right now? I can't say it is, obviously, or else you'd be seeing airliners falling out of the sky and uh, a lot of news articles and stuff on it. But if you think about how, even just in the aviation industry, how... Um, you know, technology has grown. I mean, I even think one of the things, if I remember right, um, were you instrumental in, in like putting Docker on an F-16? Was that was that your group that, that did that? Yep, it was. Yeah, so, you know, you, you see this like this growth of like general computing platforms that are, you know, running software for everything. And instead of having dedicated hardware and systems, uh, it's just so expensive and stuff. Now you have these general computing platforms with all these software stacks and everything else. A lot more digital connectivity, more data links, you know, um, even on the commercial side, I know, you know, you and I are both pilots. So, you know, even just getting your instrument flight, you know, rating uh, all the different wireless stuff that's out there that we use, you know, everything from old school VORs and ILS to GPS and data links for weather, you know, satellite communications, ground communications, you name it, there's a link for it. And we just keep adding more and more. And now, we're connecting iPads into the cockpit. So I have, you know, my iPad connects directly into my display system so I can do flight plans on my iPad, push it into the display system of the plane. Um, so, so all this connectivity and all these different systems that we're adding just increases that attack surface so much and it just keeps growing every day. And it's growing so fast that even testing it, um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about, you know, just designing, you know, avionics software, um, you know, way back when, after I got out of the Marine Corps, while I was going through college, I worked at a company called um, Avidyne, a great company, makes awesome, um, you know. Avidyne, uh, 
I've done PFD and MFD and, and, and everything. So, Oh, great, great team. Great dudes. Absolutely love Avidine to this day. Um, you know, my next plane is going to be completely decked out with Avidine gear. Um, but I remember I used to write software for them way, way back in the day. And I remember like, you have to conform to the standard. Um, well back then, I, I think it's changed now, but it was DO 178 B and there was like different levels of it. And basically like a level, you know, a certain, like the highest degree of assurance when you test your code um, to get it certified by the FAA, you have to cover like every single line of code has to get hit in your tests. And like every conditional has to get hit in every possible way. And so that way you make sure that you're thoroughly testing your software. Well, even though you conform to that code uh, and even, or that regulation, and even though you've tested that rigorously, um, you there are still times where you run into you know, cases that just happen during use of the, the system that cause the box to crash, um, that cause some kind of, you know, um, you know, exception within the software. And so it's it, even, even with the, the heavier regulation for aviation software, yes, it's a heck of a lot more secure than just writing a normal app for your desktop, but there are still bugs in it. Like there are still flaws that end up in the system and you can see them in test because I remember specifically writing code one time where I had to take out a conditional that was like, if this, then that, um, we couldn't hit the then in tests, uh, because there just wasn't, it was like a non-functional thing that I put in there just as a way of like, you know, just in case, you know, you know, don't crash and, and clean up nicely after it. Um, well, we hit that case in like one of our flight tests it was like, Oh, okay. So we got to make our tests better in order to keep that conditional in there to protect against that crash. So uh, it's, it's, it's a crazy world. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting example, right? Because, uh, you know, you want to increase the software assurance. It's the same with nuclear surety, by the way, probably worse. Um, <laughs> so I, I was also leading all the nuclear stuff in, in the department and in software. But, you know, the other aspect of that is then they're stuck in time, right? And so, you know, if you can react to to important cyber events and zero days and, and you have to do all this testing and stuff, you, you also increase the risk there. So this, I guess, is an interesting balance between the two. And, and honestly, I'm all about test coverage and, and higher uh, test coverage posture, but you also cannot trade off completely, uh, you know, innovation there. And so it's, it's an interesting balance. But, you know, you can also decouple, right, like you said. You know, if someone gets into the entertainment system and it's you know pro properly siloed from the rest of the 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 platform, you know the impact is pretty minimal compared to getting to uh, something that would control uh, the plane or, or the car uh, and the right. brakes and then whatnot, right? Um, yeah, there was. You know, yeah, there there was one case of this where um, a guy he actually got banned from flying. I don't know if he ever got um, you know off the, the no fly list, but he had uh, plugged into the display system in the plane, you know, in the seat and was able to um, manipulate uh, what was, you know, going on on the screen with the, you know, the little flight tracker on, you know, your, your, your in, in seat um, application on a commercial airliner. And a lot of the news stories were like, you know, hacker makes planes speed up in the air. Uh, and you're like, whoa, like he actually got into the flight controls and the and the FADAC and and everything else and like actually affected the engines. Uh, no, he he was just manipulating, you know, just some of the variables that were in the seat itself because that network is supposedly supposed to be siloed off uh, and VLAN from from everything else. And so you're right. If you architect the system right, um, 
you know, who cares if someone's messing with the infotainment in the back of a seat of a plane, like it's not going to crash the plane. He's not actually flying the plane, but the news will right. make you think so. So you click on it and read the story to get the, the real details of it. Right. And that's the thing, right? The siloing the features and making sure that uh, we have more velocity on the stuff that's not, you know, critical versus mm -hmm. the stuff that doesn't change a lot anyways, when it comes to flight controls and controlling a car, that, that doesn't change a lot, right? So you're not going to need to tweak that software a lot, right? Right. So, and and even in the DO-178 spec, you know, there there were different levels. And I think like the lowest level was things like Sirium XM, Sirius XM radio. Like, right. honestly, if you're flying along and something happens and, you know, the one process running your radio crashes, I mean, you're going to miss a couple minutes of the game. You know, no big deal. Like maybe focus on your ATC calls for a couple minutes while it reboots, right? No big deal. But if your PFD, <laughs> you know, crashes with all your AHARs, that's a big problem. Uh, and so like right. that was so the more like stringent one. So like depending on what level it was or how critical the system was, it was classified at a different level. Um, so you didn't have as much rigor in the stuff that didn't matter as much. Yeah, I can tell you, I, I still did not activate the feature to connect my iPad to the uh, to the flight plan in the plane because I, I I just type it again. Let's let's you know, I mean, I I just I just felt like typing the flight plan is not going to be life altering compared to uh, if something happens with that connectivity there in my iPad. You know, so anyway. That's yeah, why, I think it's the. The, the 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 risk versus reward i mean like we all know online banking is pretty much broken but we all use it because it's just way too convenient right. and and i'm going to admit it like i know way too much i still pair my phone to rental cars uh just so mm -hmm. i can like use the hands free <laughs> stuff in rental cars and i know it's an absolute terrible idea i know i shouldn't do it but it's just too convenient and so that's right uh, i mean i do the brutus but i don't do the uh the the contact sharing part yeah you, oh yeah don't uh, think contacts yeah don't do that part Cause that stuff right. like stays like you, you don't erase that. So right. even though like you go in and say, delete my device, like if you sync contacts, it's still in there. All your navigation's still in there. Like they don't actually delete. Right. Right. So now, you know, looking at protecting all these platforms, right. What's different about protecting them and what are the challenges that you see there? Yeah, it's um so there's there's some similarities, but there's a, a lot more differences. Um, I mean, obviously you would imagine a joint strike fighter is gonna look significantly different than you know your BMW, you know, 540i. Uh, at least you would sort of hope so. Um, you know, from an IT network perspective, um, the similarity is you've got a lot of different computers, each one with its own processor, memory, you know, full software stack, firmware, everything. Um, all networked as part of a bigger system. And so like, that's the similarity. Um, so, you know, like if you look at like an old school F-18, for example, you know, you've got like flight control computers, armament computers, um, you know, all the different things, the DDIs in the cockpit for display and everything else. And each one is its own system. It's got its own processor, its own memory, everything. Um, but they're all networked together to create the bigger system, which is the fighter aircraft. Uh, same thing with, you know, cars, same thing with satellites, same thing with ships, you know, they're, they're all the same way. It's just all these computers network. Um, the difference is um, you start getting into the nuances of that is, is just hardware and software stacks. So in a lot of IT systems, you don't have real time systems, but on the embedded side and the platform side, pretty much everything is a real time system. And, you know, for people who don't know what that 
specifically means is it means that for me, you know, as an engine controller and engine ECU, I have to receive certain data every 10 milliseconds. And if I miss it, then my function will be degraded. Um, so like, for example, like ethernet packets, like if you start dropping packets or they start getting lost in the ether and, you know, the routing and everything else and TCP and all that mess. Um, like, so you get a little bit of lag when you try to load, you know, your news website, you know, not, not that big a deal. Um, but if you start missing messages to an engine controller to like a FADEC, um, you know, like an engine controller on, on a jet, um, you know, now you start running into major problems. Like the actual system cannot function. And so everything from the network design and the protocols that are used all the way up into like the higher level application layer software within each of those controllers, like all of it has to conform to this concept of real time. And that means like this function has to run every hundred milliseconds without fail. If I miss it, things are going to be really bad. And so that's where it like really gets interesting from both a defense perspective and an offense perspective. Um, because on a defense perspective, let's just say like we want to do anomaly detection within, um, you know, the software, or the firmware of a flight control computer. Well, what we want to do is we know that like certain functions should be called in certain ways, in, in certain order, I should say. And we know that this function should only take, you know, 10 clock cycles to run. This one takes 50 clock cycles, whatever. So we're going to go in and we're going to instrument all those functions to pull that data out there. Like, how long did that function take to run? What function called what function? Like, let's pull all that data out so we can analyze it and make sure that it conforms to what we know should happen. Well, by collecting all that data, we slow the system down and now we completely blow through all those real-time constraints. And so just by trying to add defense, we degrade the performance enough to where now it can't function. And so that, that's where it starts getting really tricky is when you start looking at protecting platforms, um, you have to make sure that you don't impact the system in a way that degrades its performance. You know, like one thing, if we could layer encryption on top of the CAN bus for vehicles, that would solve message replay attacks, message spoofing attacks. Um, there's still a few attacks that it wouldn't like bus off attacks and denial of service and stuff like that, but it would solve a very large portion of the problem. Uh, the only thing is, is the overhead of modern day encryption systems blows through all the real-time constraints on a CAN bus. And so you just physically can't or else the vehicle can't function, not in the way that they do today. And so that's where they've started like looking at like, well, how do we leverage encryption on just important stuff like firmware updates, but everything else is going to be out in the open. It still leaves you vulnerable. And so uh, it, it's definitely a different world in just, just the constraints that you have on like the processor speed. The processors usually aren't as fast as what a normal IT processor that you'd find in your normal desktop, laptop, or whatever would be a lot less memory and, um, you know, a lot more real-time constraints. And so it's, it is just kind of a different world just in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, the real-time constraints is something I never really uh, knew about in my, you know, 20 year career before the government, because, you know, I never got involved into embedded systems or anything like that, but, uh, when you start to understand the 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 issues you're facing when you you have to uh, make sure that you you're sticking to these uh, real time constraints that really changed a lot of things you know what what's been interesting is the work that SpaceX has done on top of uh, open source linux and commercial hardware and demonstrated that uh, the open source by the way the the real time patch on linux uh, to to really enable others to to use 
open source Linux for real time uh, constraints, uh, you know, and, and be able to do that uh, without paying a fortune in, in all these uh, specialty hardware, which, mm-hmm. which in turn, you know, reduced your ability to bring uh, tools and uh, capabilities because you're limited to that ecosystem of this one company that's effectively controlling the entire software stack on top of that uh, chip. And so, you know, what's been interesting is to see how SpaceX, by moving to x86 architecture in real time, was able to use all the open source, you know, uh, stuff that we use every day and be able to move at a much faster pace. Yep. Yeah. And and I mean, I think you can say that for most of the companies that Elon Musk has been involved in, like Tesla, they they kind of changed the game for vehicle technology. Um, you know, same thing on the SpaceX side completely re-architected the way a lot of those systems, like even from just the deliveries so the rockets all the way to the, both the bus and the payload, you know, on orbit. Uh, yeah, completely changed everything. Uh, kind of took a whole new look at it and it's really interesting what they're doing. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so let's talk a little bit AI, right? Uh, obviously. I got to ask you the question, but you know, I, even if I didn't have a company, I think it's a question that uh, you want, you would want me to ask you anyways. Uh, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong or not. But how do you see AI and and you know generative AI in particular, and you know also because it's so accessible, right, compared to to other AI technologies that do require data scientists or some type of expertise to run it. This is something that can be accessed for free or for twenty bucks, thirty bucks. Twenty five bucks if you use the Let's Beat China on asset.ai uh, coupon code. Uh, I like the plug there. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was slick, right? So, um, but how is that impacting? Let, let's look at both. You know, the the, the offensive side, mm-hmm. and the, I think you know people are actually starting to wake up on the you know on the on the offensive side by realizing they can write malware with it, and mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's scary, right? So people are freaking out and want to shut off everything. But you know, the, the genie is out of the bottle, so you're not going to be able to do that. But uh, so, so tell me first about the defensive side impact, and then the offensive side. Yeah, I, well, the interesting thing is, I think most of the news articles you see, they're they're always talking about the offensive side, right? Like we're lowering the bar for entry, we're making things cheaper um, for attackers to generate their attacks and and all that, and that's you know absolutely true. Um, on the defensive side, I think it doesn't get as, as much coverage, but um, it, it'll be really interesting to see how it evolves because I can really see just from what I've messed with uh, these technologies and and messed with them, um, how, how quickly you can, um, or how you can accelerate the process to generate defensive architectures. So everything from, you know, understanding what is best practices for a certain kind of network, generating you know, like on the government side, generating your risk management framework package or or helping generate a lot of policies and procedures that are based on like real world um, best, you know, um, best case analysis for and then tailor it for your specific network. Just let the AI do all of that and generate all your policies, all your procedures, you know, all your different packages and then submit them and get your CMMC level two certification. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I can really see that. I mean, I can even see it being used all the way down at the source code level where, you know, even IT administrators can use like a generative AI program to generate scripts that they could run to harden Linux systems. Um, because, you know, 
Linux is Linux, but not all are created equal depending on how you install it, where you install it, what your network looks like, what you're running on it, et cetera, et cetera. So you can take these like, you know, best practices that all the AI has been trained on and then all the the various, you know, minute details and, and differences from what your implementation is and have it help you generate all of that information, everything from the policies, procedures, again, all the way down to the source code and the scripts that'll help you harden it and defend against it. So um, it'll be really interesting to see there. And, you know, every, every time AI comes up uh, in the cybersecurity space, you know, I think back to some of the early DARPA programs that were what, 2015, 2016, uh, like the Cyber Grand Challenge, where um, they actually like ran it at DEF CON. Uh, I know Raytheon, where I worked, you know, the, the SI team, like they had their own solution that that ran there. Um, but it was automating both the attack and the defense. So you were supposed to have AI systems as part of this that would look at exploits, you know, exploits coming across the wire, see how it's exploiting a process and then auto-generate a patch for that process, but then at the same time, regenerate your own exploit and then go hit other teams with it as well. So I think we've been um, talking about AI and cybersecurity for a very long time, but with this generative AI hitting the headlines recently, that's where it's really starting to get out there into the public space. Yeah, that's right. And you know what, what's interesting is, uh, and you mentioned a few of these uh, concepts, but you know, I'm spending my life on it, so obviously uh, I get to see all the the cool stuff. Uh, you know, we just released a plugin on that stage uh, last week, and I you know, tell me what you think about it. But uh, we we have a, a Git repo scanner, right? That's uh, scanning uh, any Git repo, and it's looking at every file, you know. And it's uh, you know the prompt is telling the bot to uh, uh, to look for improvements both in the in the security side. Uh, you know, um, the the performance, um, readability, you know, uh, and even commenting code because I hate doing that, right? Uh, so it's commenting my code for me and stuff. And so the bot does that in the background and creates a, a new branch and a pull request to let the human review the, co the code. And, you know, obviously it's not perfect. And I would say I probably keep 70% of it because it's making changes that are sometimes, you know, short-sighted or, or because it doesn't have the full picture of the entire code base right. so you know it can make some mistakes uh for now at least because of the limitation of tokens i think that's going to increase so that's interesting um and it just you know it's almost like a free audit an improvement you know an additional uh you know uh capability every night um and then you know we also uh, obviously use sage to write uh sage stuff you know every day I would say it turns one developer into 10 uh, easily um, with the right orchestration, the right person orchestrating the bot, because that's what you become. You become an orchestrator, mm -hmm. you know, um, of, of that dance of, of writing code. And, you know, the bot wrote on that stage itself, you know, you go on the website and the, the app, 90% of the UI created by the bot, 90% of the backend, 100% uh, of SQL, 100% of DevSecOps, uh, YAML, and CICD stuff, 100% of the SBOM generation stuff. Um, we have 100% of legal, the logo was created by the bot, right? So so it's like, it's a company as a service capability at that point, right? It's, effectively, you create a company, right, out of this. Um, so it's pretty, pretty incredible, you know? And another thing that kind of blew my mind is when we asked the bot to do a, a, a Kubernetes ingress using Nginx to enable CAC authentication for government teams. 
and he was able to do it. You know, and it you know, CAC authentication is not the most common thing on the planet by far. No. <laughs> and, and so, you know, um, and then you know, when it comes to uh, reflecting, you know, we have a we have a plugin, for example, where you know, teams have uh, let's say a database like Postgres or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And you can now ask questions in plan. So all we do is we connect it to the Postgres database. You know, you know, it, it, it's going to know how to pull the tables and the fields and stuff. Uh, so you don't need to teach it that. Uh, and then we we ask questions in plain English, and it converts the plain English to a query, right? And you know, sometimes a query doesn't work. So what we ended up doing is say, you know what, we get an error, right? So we're gonna we're gonna tell the bot as a follow up question that hey, you gave me this SQL query but reflect on itself because it's not working and it's getting this error and fix it, right? And then it gives us an updated query that's working. So it's it's able to self-reflect and fix its own mistakes, right? Um, so it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, we, we connected, you know, to Elastic. And so now, you know, teams that had to write Lucene queries and stuff now can just ask in plain English, and then Sage goes and pull from Elastic, you know, using the API and give you the result back. Just today, we released uh, another one that's uh, a plugin chain, an agent kind of thing, where it's chaining and connecting different st- stages of the plugin. Um, so first, it's going to, for example, open a PDF, get the content truncated into chunks, so it's below the token limit. Uh, it's going to train that into a, a data set that you created to store that uh, those different chunks, and then it's going to, you know, maybe summarize those chunks into a summarized version of it and it's going to train the summarized version into the data set as well so you have also the trained uh, summary of the whole thing so it's almost like you could ingest a book right it would ingest each chapter of the book and then you would summarize the chapter so you have the full summary of the book so then you can ask questions very precise about a chapter or uh, questions you know broader about the book and it's going to know both both right despite the limit of tokens and you know we we use it to write RFPs and add an RFP. You know, last week it took me 32 minutes instead of probably a couple of days, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and you know, we we have a plugin that's able to generate a PowerPoint, right? And so we tell about you know write a PowerPoint, five slides, you know one about Nick, one about Terry and, and stuff, and it's going to generate the code in Python, right? You're gonna you're gonna have that code. We run the code into a Python sandbox. And then we get the PowerPoint back and you give it to the user seamless. So, so the bot is capable of, of writing code that works, that runs, yeah. right? Not just like code that's half baked or like 90% baked or because even a one line error, it would not work, uh, but yet it does. So w- what's your take on, you know, obviously on the defensive side, you've heard Microsoft announcing they're working on Sentinel and things to, to start bringing GPT for analyzing behavior and logs and things. It's very good at detecting, uh, you know, extracting insights. You know, I, we have a plugin to detect emotions in text, detecting, you know, categorized labeling data, right? Doing a very good job at that. Um, you know, so, 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 you know, I think that the issue we find is people don't know how to prompt engineer stuff. So that's why we have a prompt engineer persona actually to, to mm-hmm. ask the bot how to talk to itself so it can tell you how to write the question. So so what's your thoughts on, on all of these examples here? Um, all of them are incredible. You know, like even from the very beginning, you start thinking about how like 
you make a 3D printer and then you use it to print itself to make more 3D printers, right? And so like, same thing, like you've got a bot that writes your code and then you just spit that code right back into the bot to make it better. And so like, it's just now a machine building another That's machine. It's just all on right. the on the software side. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things is um, there are people with a little bit of a short-sighted uh, like view where they're like, oh, wait, you mean you're telling me that you're only 70% accurate? Well, then it's garbage. We're going to throw it out. The problem is, is that tomorrow, literally 24 hours later, it could be 75% accurate. And right. by the end of the week, by the end of the month, it's 90% accurate. Like it's moving so fast. Um, and the more that it, and the, and the crazy thing is the more mistakes that it makes and like you looping it back through, the more that it learns. Right. And then those same and, mistakes and that's don't the thing, happen. Right? I think people don't realize kind of the, um, the benefit of, you know, and by the way, you know, the way we did on, on Sage is I think that's very important when you train the data is not looking you into the model. So you can swap between, you know, Cohere, Google Vault and, and OpenAI, you know, three, five, four and whatever, and have the same training data across all the model. I think that's very important the way we built it. So we're not locked into one model. Uh, but like you said, right, the only time it's wrong is when it doesn't know. And every time we train it then it's going to be right. So, so even if you did find this use case that, uh, you know, the bot is, is only at, you know, 50, 20, you know, 70%, whatever, it's very simple to, to address it. Right. And the more you're going to connect it to, uh, you know, what I love is how we tap into live database and APIs. You know, we did a go no go flying decision with the air force. Right. And it's tapping into 20 APIs of the FA and stuff to pull with the data nodems and stuff, right? And aggregating all that and, and kind of helping the pilot make a, a flying decision. Well, that's that's a game changer. Mm -hmm. And but it's it, it cannot be wrong on the data side because it's pulling the data from the APIs in real time. It's not using memory item, it's not remembering stuff, it's you know, pulling it in real time. All it does though, it uses the GPT stuff to analyze it which is not likely at all to be wrong whatsoever because it doesn't, it, when it hallucinate and when it's wrong, it's often when it doesn't know. So if you give right. it the data and you say, you know, like I give it a meter and I tell it to convert it into plain English for people that don't know how to read all these codes, um, it does a perfect job. It's never wrong. It cannot be wrong because you gave it the meter and it knows how to uh, analyze it. So, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> kind of going back up to the higher level of like, how does this work for defense and offense and cybersecurity? Um, you know, we talk a lot about the cat and mouse game uh, that is cybersecurity, right? So, you know, the attackers, they generate an attack. Um, you know, we got buffer overflows, whatever. Um, they roll out a defense, you know, Windows rolled out, you know, DEP. Um, we found a way around that. So then they rolled out ASLR. So we found a way around that. So they did code signing and so on and so on and so forth. It's it's an interesting cat and mouse game where whenever you roll out a new defense, like the offense will find a new way, like they'll generate a new type of attack, a new this, new that. They'll they'll discover something, um, and then so once that's out there, defense rolls out a defense against it. So it's just this cat and mouse. It would also it would almost be interesting, like kind of like the old war games, you know, the whopper from from war games where it plays against itself and it ends up you know determining like the best way to win is not to play. It'd be interesting to put. Um, a bot against a bot where like it generates some kind of exploit and then the defense rolls out the, the defense for it. And then you roll out another, you know, offensive piece and just let it just increase security by playing against itself. Right. I think that's going to be the future of research in, in, in defense and offense. 
I think it's going to be uh, these agents like we built for that automation thing we did. It's it's pretty scary, right? Because um, you know the way like the Auto GPT, for example, Open Source Product did it. They have zero security in mind. I mean, they literally let the bot write bash scripts and run it without any checks on the bash scripts or what it does. Uh, write code and execute the code. We have the sandboxes, but they are very controlled, and you know we check what it's doing. Um, I would not be comfortable letting the bot just run its own code. You know, I mean, this is potentially how you end up with a Terminator, uh, you know, this event, guy, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, pretty scary stuff. So, you know, I, I think the issue is a lot of the GPT teams focusing on, you know, building all these cool age and stuff are forgetting a lot about cyber and they have no cyber background. Uh, so they're going to create a lot of new vulnerabilities in AI specifically to start targeting these bots and, and kind of trying to go after data or try to go after uh, creating bias or stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. so. so with that, what keeps you, well, first, what is the next big thing that we haven't talked about? What, what What's, what's you know, getting you excited when you think of both maybe the, the, the offensive side and the defensive side? Yeah, I think... Um... Ah, oh, geez, I don't know. Like, it's really hard to to see and, and predict what's next. Um, maybe Elon Musk is is better at it, but uh, he seems to hit it every time. Um, but I know I think that the AI race um, is just getting started. Um, you know, like cybersecurity. You know, back in you know ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. Like that's where we were kind of at this like really early entry point to where like some people, you know, deep in an intelligence agency somewhere, um, like through the eighties and nineties, we're, you know, figuring a lot of this stuff out, but nobody else really knew about it yet. And then all of a sudden, you know, hit 2000, you know, all the way to like 2020, just the, the curve and the amount of money going into it. And, and the number of programs in the government doing different cyber warfare type things just ex absolutely exploded. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of hitting the top of that curve now where it's like, okay, we we've hit the point to where like everything is, is in the pace of, of working and yeah, there's still money going into it, but uh, it's not like AI, right? Like, like we are at that really early stage still. Um, and I don't think we've even seen um, even close to what it's capable of. Um, it's coming. I think we're just starting to hit that vertical, you know, that vertical climb right now uh, in that area. So I, I think that, you know, the next big thing is going to be just AI and it being applied across everything. I mean, we, we've been talking about, you know, using AI to do diagnostics on, um, you know, the, uh, the mammogram, uh, screens that kind of detect, uh, breast cancer, um, or, you know, doing MRI scans and using AI to look at those to look for, for different, uh, medical conditions and things like that. The, these things have been around for a while. We've been talking about them. We've seen some technologies rolling out, but not a lot. Um, but you know, how is this going to actually be applied to everything in life? Like, are you going to have Marines, you know, sitting, you know, on the outskirts of Fallujah, you know, using a GPT type bot to generate an attack plan, uh, to take over one section, uh, or one neighborhood of, of a city and like actually have it showing you like every infantry movement, where to put your armor, where to put your snipers, where to put this, where to put that, um, you know, all the way up to, you know, like we've been talking with the air force and saying like, Hey, you know, what would a cyber security display to a pilot actually show? 
Um, you know, because like you always think of like all the cybersecurity stuff being in the background, but what does a pilot need to know about the cybersecurity of their aircraft as they're crossing over the beach and going in country on a bombing run or, or, a, you know, doing a cap mission or, or whatever else. Um, and so like, we're still like kind of exploring some of that, you know, one of the big things the air force is talking about, and this is something that, um, we actually just recently won a, a phase one SBI for is looking at the cybersecurity of, um, autonomous fighter aircraft um, that are, you know, being tasked by manned aircraft. Um, you know, what does that even look like? You know, what does the pilots need to know? You know, what different levels of protection do we need on those different things? Um, so now start adding AI into all that stuff. You know, obviously you have AI in every single one of those autonomous drones. They're being tasked by pilots and they're going out and conducting a mission. So I think, I guess, over on a long-winded way, uh, what I'm saying is I think the next big thing is just seeing how AI is going to apply to every aspect of life, not just in these few areas that we've seen it so far. And uh, I think, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, it's going to be nothing like today. It's going to be vastly different. And I'm not even sure I'm, I could even predict what's going to happen. Yeah. If you can, you let me know so I can buy it, buy some stock of it. Right. Yeah. I'll start an investment, uh, <laughs> investment firm. So what keeps you up at night? Um, people not being willing to fight. Um, I think that's what, what worries me the most. Um, you have people coming out well, right now. People saying, don't even realize we're in a fight, right? Oh th yeah. That's actually very true. Um, that, so that's before true. they have been willing for us to have to realize there's a problem, right? Right. So. That's true. Like you don't realize you're in a fight. And then, uh, when you do realize you're not willing to fight, you know, there, there's been some talk lately about stopping all AI research, uh, in North America and, you know, in, in the United States until we come out with the right regulations to, um, to, to make sure we it. do it in a smart way. But the second China we stop it. our peer adversaries, like China, like they're, they're gone. Like they're, they're going to be so far ahead of us. There's, there's no catching up at that point. It would be criminal. It would be criminal. It would, it, it would absolutely. And so I think just this, um, yeah, I, I'm really afraid that just uh, it feels people, like people forget that we're not alone on the planet. You know, it feels like people somehow think, uh, you know, if if we do it, we're going to lead the way, and others are going to do it. And China is just laughing, be like, "Yeah, we'll tell you we're stopping too, but we're not going to do it." Oh yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, and that we we've seen that time and time again, even with like carbon emissions and everything. They're like, "Oh, oh sure. yeah, yeah, we're we, we're on board with that." We're not going to do that <laughs> in 20 years, you know, and, and everything they sign is like 20 years, you know, away because it's like we're, we're, we're an emerging nation, you know, <laughs> emerging nation that's faster than us, you know, so that's convenient, you know. I mean, you almost have to laugh sometimes, even though it's just absolutely terrible, but it it's crazy. So that, that that's, you I know, think, what keeps me up the at night. They get in the WHO and everything else, right? If you look at pretty much every regulation, even from the Paris Accord and all this climate stuff. They get a pass on everything. They, they have 10 years to do stuff that we have to do now. Why? Yep. Well, you know, they're an emerging nation. You know, I'm like, yeah. You know, who, how much how much money did they pay you for you to say that, right? Uh, right. That's, that would be something i like to know. You know, how much how much do those, those people get paid to try to get away with murder, you know, so. Yeah, and, and, and that's just it. Like, we, we have to stay in the fight. Like, we have to stay in the fight. Like, I mean, if you look back at, you know, even the space race and, and like, you know, the Mercury, the Gemini, the Apollo programs, you know, all of those kinds of things, like, we were literally strapping, you know, human beings on top of explosive, like, massive explosions <laughs> to, like, to, like, really push technology out there and really be the world leader. 
and, and because like you know as a as a as a free nation and you know a democracy and i mean it just you know us leading the way would be better than some of our peer adversaries leading the way because they're not going to do it in a way that cares about human rights and I don't think a lot of people get that. They they see how our adversaries are being portrayed in movies. They see how like they're being portrayed in the media and they're like, "Oh no, they're friends. Like they're they're nice people. Like we there's no problem here." But like, there's no, no movie like, against China. There's zero uh war engagement or, you know, anything. Well, they uh, comp if you compare with the Cold War, you know, where there's the Russian was the bad guys, you will never see a movie with China as a bad guy. Well, I think if I remember correctly, the uh, the the reboot of uh, Red Dawn was originally China was the enemy, and they made them, I think, into North Change. Koreans because China wouldn't right. show it in China, and the box office wanted That's the right. money, so they went back and CGI'd all the uniforms to be different. Like it's it's crazy, but like we are in a fight, like we absolutely are, and we have to win it. We have to. And so we can't stop. Like we have to have that same early mentality of let's push the envelope. Let's strap people to explosives and get them to Mars. Like let's push that envelope as far as we can in every possible way in AI and space exploration and military technology in healthcare and FinTech in every possible way. We have to be the leader because we are still one of the few nations that actually care about human beings and we should maintain right. that dominance. They still haven't banned TikTok. So, you know, um, even when we know, you know, even when it's in front of our face and it's obvious to everybody and their and their grandmothers, uh, you know, they, they still don't do not do the right thing because, you know, money gets in the way, lobbying and what else is, is there, you know? So. Uh, I, it's funny. I think everybody like around me is tired of me like, getting me started on TikTok because I think every time you post something, I'm like, see? He gets it. He knows. Like <laughs> we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I went the first one on, on public, you know, large, you know, engagement on TV to to stop, you know, telling people to ban it, and people thought I was crazy until a lot of people started to say the same thing, you know. And now it's like very commonly agreed that there's a problem at least, but I've yet to see the fix yet, you know. Yep. And uh, you know, moving the data to a to Oracle Cloud is a joke. You know, it's not going to do anything. It's ridiculous. So anyway. Um, well, first of all, wanted to thank you because I think this was awesome. You really opened the door to a lot of great discussions. I think people learned a lot today. Uh, we do have a question I wanted to bring. It's really, I think it's going to give you a chance to give us a little bit of insight when it comes to what you're building and what you're working on with your company specifically. Alex was asking, um, so basically you're doing something like cross-strike cross for embedded systems. Give us a little bit of insight you know, when it comes to what you're building. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, there, there's a piece of it. Um, I think the, the easiest, um, you know, analogy to make there is just uh, cyber intrusion detection. Um, but we actually take it even further than that. We, um, you know, cyber actually is just a small component. We actually call it more anomaly detection. Um, you know, when you think of anomalies applied to a platform, so a car, a jet, a spacecraft, um, there's really three main categories that you can think of in terms of anomalies, right? And like, so cybersecurity, that's the sexy one, right? Like everybody wants to talk about cyber warfare. It's super sexy. It's super cool. It's James Bond, all that kind of stuff. So, but, but cyber is just one classification of anomalies that could occur um, within, uh, within a system. Another anomaly um, could be environmental, and so, you know, if a vehicle is stuck in the mud, uh, you know, what your tires are doing and what your drivetrain is doing is not what it should be doing. Um, likewise, if you're a spacecraft and you're operating at, you know, um, 
you know, geospatial orbit or high earth orbit, whatever, uh, and you get a radiation event that starts flipping bits in memory, um, that is an anomaly. It's an environmental anomaly. It's an environmental thing that affected your platform. Uh, and then there's a maintenance anomaly or a system anomaly, you know, like something's breaking. So either like one of your sensors is going bad, you're starting to get sensor drift. Uh, one of your actuators is going bad. It's not responding the way that it should be responding. Um, you know, things like that. And then you could group even um, anomalies based on uh, flaws in the design as part of kind of a maintenance anomaly, or you can make it its own category. Uh, so there's the, the kind of the three main areas of anomalies. And with that, what we're building, um, you know, we talk cybersecurity. That's that's my background, cybersecurity and AI. My, you know, honestly, the Fleet Defender team, I've got guys like, you know, Danny on, on machine learning, Brett on software, you know, we've got an awesome marketing and sales team, but with Marcus and Doug, you know, all those guys, they're, they're just absolutely amazing. Um, but we've actually turned it more than just cybersecurity and we're kind of pushing more into like total platform intelligence. Uh, and that includes everything from predictive maintenance, um, driver and operator safety, just to make sure your drivers aren't distracted, drowsy, drunk. I mean, think, teenagers, everyone else, like you want to know what your kid's doing and how they're driving, if they're being aggressive. Uh, so everything from there, and, you know, obviously from a driver's safety, everybody cares about that because everybody's on our roads. Um, you want to make sure, you know, we're operating vehicles in a safe manner. Um, and then, you know, all the way again, back to the cyber side for the cyber attacks. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's growing vastly and very quickly outside of, um, just cybersecurity into that total platform intelligence. And what's funny is uh, my five-year vision uh, for Fleet Defender um, was we wanted to be running on platforms at the bottom of the ocean all the way to platforms in outer space and everything in between. Um, but the crazy thing is, is like the market, um, when we went out there, like the, the actual traction that we're starting to get has like decreased that timeline so much that we're now engaged with space force, looking at low earth orbit satellites. We're looking, uh, we're engaged with the air force on, um, you know, fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft. Um, we've started to engage with the Navy on unmanned underwater vehicles. And so just the, 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 the market need for what we're doing, um, is actually compressing our timeline quite a bit. And you think like, you know, you always have problems and some are good and some are bad and some are both. Um, and you know, and so that's great. Like there's this big market need, but where do we focus? And so, uh, it really is like right now we're really kind of transforming the company and, and really accelerating what we're doing because the market need across so many different platforms is so great. Um, and it all needs to be addressed now because we've got adversaries knocking on our door. So that's kind of where we're at. You know, we're, we're growing from cybersecurity into that total platform intelligence and, and truly covering all platforms, not just ground vehicles, but, but everything in between. That's a fun place to work at and pretty a uh, fun place to, to build innovation at. So I uh, wanted to thank you again for joining us. We're going to give you uh, the parting words in a minute. Uh, before that, I wanted to remind everybody that next Tuesday, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, we will have Amir the co-founder of Aqua Security to come to talk to us about uh, dev to code, uh, dev to cloud uh, security and how the security landscape is evolving also now with uh, AI adoption and, and really um, what they've been working on for the last seven years uh, to bring this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, cloud-wide security stack in, and moved away from being just a container security company. So that's going to be an interesting discussion that next Tuesday. Uh, and with that, I wanted to thank you again. 
uh, Terry, for uh, spending the time with us. I think we uh, we really learned a lot today. That was uh, an awesome uh, awesome episode. So thank you. And uh, over to you for the last uh, last words. Yeah, thank you everybody for for tuning in. This was an absolute blast. Had a had a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I, I think what we're doing is is really fun and and really cool. And if you want to learn more, please engage with us. You know, fleetdefender.com, Reach out and uh, happy to have the conversation. With that, thanks everybody. See you next Tuesday, one p.m. And in the meantime, let's make sure our kids have a fighting chance to win against China twenty years from now. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>